You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to the very latest Unfiltered, which features Dave Haslam, superstar DJ, but also very, very accomplished writer, which as you read his latest book, Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, you will realise as, as much a part of his cultural development as anything musical. There's there's one problem with this. I am one of those people that can bore on for England about Manchester in 1990 because I, I moved there and got caught up in the club culture. So just give me a slap if I start prostrating myself at his feet. Where, where does one start with a description? We'll go with superstar DJ and then we'll work out in the course of our time together how ironic, we'll unpick that, that. <laughs> how ironic that label is. You have written your fourth book, Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, which is a memoir. Your previous books have had elements of memoir to them or bits of them have. In fact, in, in a way, this, this knits together the three hmm. themes of the previous books and, and delivers a, well, an astonishing overview of a, of a period of, of British cultural history focused particularly on Manchester that, that I think, personally, historians of the future will be fascinated by. And I say personally because, in a way, I don't know how I'd conduct this interview if I hadn't been in crowds that you've been playing to and I hadn't been in Manchester in, in 1988 briefly and then I moved there in 1990. And, and I feel, as a southern pansy, that, that part of that whole cultural movement was was going through my veins. And, and yet, of course, for a lot of the country, they were just watching it from the outside. It's weird, isn't it? It's almost not cultish, but that, that four-year period was, was quite incredible for everyone who was in it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do believe that the whole experience... I mean, if we talk very specifically about that idea of being on the dance floor, say, at the Hacienda, then I'm often in a room and I'm saying to people, it changed people's lives. And in some contexts, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say about two or three hours in a big discotheque. But I only say it because the evidence is all around me in the people that I meet. And obviously in Manchester, particularly in the legacy of the Hacienda, in terms of people like the Chemical Brothers, two Southern Pansies like yourself, coming up (laughs) to Manchester around the same time, 1988, coming up to study and finding the Hacienda and it becoming their home and the music that they heard in the club becoming key to them wanting to be involved and and getting together and making music of their own. And Laurent Garnier is another example. But there's also designers and there's all kinds of people from that that era. That moment, an astonishing moment, which we will explore further. I just want to get that caveat in place that you're preaching to the choir on a lot of this, but there'll be a lot of people listening and watching who probably pretended that they might have been at Spike Island, as I have often done in the past, but actually have never never been north of Watford. Um, let's begin at the beginning, though, because you are a, a lot more than just a DJ. You're, you're in quite an old-fashioned sense. You're, you're a bit of a Renaissance man, really. Uh, I think I'm just somebody who doesn't feel like there's any obstacle. My, one of my big heroes is Kevin Rowland from Dexter's Midnight Runners. And I think that that first album was, was brilliant. And there's a song on that called Tell Me When My Light Turns Green. Mm. And it's Kevin, age 23, asking, when does my life start? In a way, I was at that point, probably around that same age, a bit kind of angsty, but eager, eager to make my mark and to say stuff and do stuff and be involved. And around that same time, he formed a you know formed a couple of bands, but I remember Dex's Midnight Runners interview where he uh, he was being interviewed by somebody and and they said oh you go down to London he said yeah but we never pay anywhere we just jump the barrier at New Street Station and for me that actually summed up the whole 
ethos of Kevin and Dexter's Midnight Runners and what you want to be when you're 23, when actually you jump the barrier and you don't wait for the light to turn green. You make it happen for yourself. And that was what I was like from a very young age... And I started my little fanzine when I was 21. No, but let's go back and, and a bit further then. Still, what I'm saying is I'm still like that. Yes. So my default is there's something happening over there. I'm going to go and see. And if it turns me on, I'm going to contribute and I'm going to participate. You grew up in Birmingham. Correct. When, when did these inclinations first start <laughs> manifesting? Um, I mean, I guess they were always there. But I, I, I remember... When I first started reading books, I was one of those young guys with a collection of Penguin modern classic novels, Sartre, Camus, all that kind of stuff. But I think it was because it it was actually a reaction against everything else. I, as early as I can remember, Saturday night TV, I would sit there and it would be, it ain't half hot mum. Yeah. And I'd be like, there's got to be more to life <laughs> than sat in on a Saturday night watching It Ain't Half Part. It didn't resonate, weirdly. It didn't resonate with me. Fair enough. And so I'm like, what What does? Where are the, where's the alternative ideas? Where's the alternative culture? What's Gosh. the stuff that speaks to me? Yes. And that was, uh, I was 10 or 11. And really? I was and you remember that? Is and it I, kind and of books a- became my first way into the world of alternative ideas. And in the 70s, there was a lot of bad things that were going on in the 70s. But in in another way, we were still in the 60s in the sense that you could create an alternative and different culture hadn't been quashed by consumerism or it was there you'd walk down the street in mosley where i grew up and you'd see proper hippies yes. i remember i used to follow weird looking people in the street i thought they would lead me yes. to a place where other weird looking people were and i had somewhere instinctively thought that's where i want to be i wasn't particularly weird looking but in my mind i thought they've dropped out or they've got an alternative view on things and it's got as i say it's got to be better than saturday night tv so i became that kind of just very curious kid and i was too young to go and see music when i was 11 10 11 12 but i could read those books and that was that was the world and then once i got started i remember going to see blondie play mm. and i was just 16. Can you imagine being 16 in 1978 and Debbie Harry's there? It was everything you could ever want. You looked but, 16 for a moment then. <laughs> I felt 16. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of stuff was pulsing through me at that moment. Um, but, um, I, but I remember wanting to know what's going on. Where, where is she from? Because obviously, in a sense, she was a creature from another planet. Another person was Iggy Pop. I saw yes. around the same time. And I remember watching him in a small club in Birmingham called Barbarella's. And I was looking yeah. at those two and I'm like, they they seem to be emissaries from another planet sent to me to open some kind of portal. Did did you feel you were on the wrong planet then? Because the, the Ain't Half Hot Mum's a great line, but it does speak of a, not a loneliness, but an alien, a cultural alienation, if we yeah, were Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think lots of people are culturally alienated. Yes. And I just think... You realised it quite early. Yeah, and that's what I mean about going off and finding the alternative. Looking think, for your tribe? Looking for the tribe. Right. And I think that I think that, that the, the great thing about growing up in, particularly in a city, any city, is the search for your tribe. And often you do find them, not necessarily by following weirdos, but, <laughs> but you find them in venues or you find them in an art house cinema or an alternative bookshop yes. or a boutique or a hairdresser's or something like that. You, you just have enough of an inkling that there's 
something else happening. I remember talking to Terry Hall about when he was growing up in Coventry and he had a kind of moment of revelation when he went into a hairdresser's and they were playing Roxy music and into a 13, 14-year-old kid in Coventry. Mm. Just that kind of little moment was enough to hint, yeah, that there's something else out there. So instead of being culturally alienated and then kind of falling back into uh, whatever, self-medicating or just feeling that you're carrying that alienation around with you like a weight. I think maybe because of that era that I was in, the late 70s, early 80s, which was very energised, that punk DIY thing, Mm. I felt like I can, yeah, I can get involved and build whatever is possible. So books and music became that, yeah, the portal. It's it's odd for someone to talk about their formative years like that without mentioning school. Um, you went to quite a formal school, didn't you? King Edwards is very yeah. academically rigorous, very, very academic. hard to get into. And I presume very... I grew up in Kidderminster, just a right. few miles down the road. I presume a very regimented school. I, I guess it... Well, I didn't know... and I didn't really know any of the... No, of course not. Thing, never do, you know, do. I mean, for me, it was... I was a rebel, but I wasn't like... I, I remember kind of thinking... I, part of me wanted to learn. Like I say, I like books. And there were teachers there who would... I remember a teacher there who introduced me to Pinter and Beckett. Hmm. I mean, there were other teachers there who had no interest in that kind of thing, but I just kind of steered clear of them. Um, <laughs> so I just kind of got out of it. What Did I you know you were clever? Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a weird one. I didn't know. No, I don't know. I mean, no, I didn't feel like I was clever I'd, at all. I felt confused and I felt that, as I say in the book... I. All I knew in my mind was if I read more, listened to more John Peel shows and followed more weirdos down the street to art house cinemas, I could somehow unlock the secret of the universe and then I would be happy and clever. And that goes on. The search goes on. So what I mean is I kind of knew there was a bit of me which was not afraid to be a bit arty. Yes. And I remember reading um, Frank Skinner, right, Obviously, he's a West Brom fan like me. I, I, I quite like Frank Skinner. I read his autobiography, and in it, at various times, he, you know, he, he's an English literature graduate, mm. and at one point in the book, he says, at this point, I could quote Gerard Manley Hopkins to you, you know, who's a famous poet from back in the day. Mm. And then he says, but I won't, because I'm Frank Skinner. And I, and I was never like that. I was never the kind of person that would want to try and pretend I was someone else or that oh, it couldn't be a West Brom fan who liked Black Sabbath, which yes. was Frank Skinner and me. But you could also like poetry. You could also like reading Kafka novels. You could, the world of ideas, you could want to know more about Warhol. You could watch George Melly programmes on late night BBC Two talking about life in the Chelsea Hotel. You could get into, you know, surreal art. You could get into anything. Yes, if it if it if, pushed if, a button, if, if it pushed a button like West Brom did or like Paranoid did, that's beautifully put. And and I, I and that's what I wanted to do. And I was I'm and in the book, I'm kind of I'm still that person. You are, in, and you resist. It's what it's a hierarchy of enthusiasms that society imposes, isn't it? So yeah. if you really like that, then you're that type of person. Yeah. But I'd never thought of it like that in the way that the impulse is actually the same. Yeah. Whether you're as you say, whether you're watching your favourite football team get mullered again on a Saturday afternoon, or, or whether you're reading a poem that makes you yeah. suddenly feel that your heart is flying out of your mouth. And I also think we're so complicated as people. I mean, not just us two, but generally. <laughs> generally, people are complicated. So how, yes. how, how are Why you... Why pretend not to be? If, if, if you only allow yourself 
a one-dimensional life experience. You're not going to meet the needs of your complicated self. So embrace it all. What was home like then? Home was, again, I was <laughs> what, what Kevin Rowland described to me as middle-class Mosley CND. <laughs> um, I have an image now. I've got, I've got it. <laughs> that's all you need to know. Citroen in the, Citroen in yeah, the driveway. But, but my parents were, it was, I think it's interesting for people, of, I mean, I'm 10 years older than you, mm. so my parents in 1963, as the Rolling Stones and the Beatles broke, they had three children under the age of five. So they were never going to drop out. They were never going to be into the, you know, they were pre-rock and roll. Yes, just. And just. Yeah. They were only a few years older than the Beatles, do you know what I mean? But that made all the difference. They were that age and they settled down early. So rock and roll to them was a completely foreign experience. You know, I'm not one of those people who can say, you know, oh, yeah, well, my parents, you know, like now, yeah. kids are like, oh, my dad, you know, saw whatever, yeah. Joy Division and Blondie. And you can kind of pass down an education, which obviously the kids will then revolt against and go out and buy shit records. But, or not buy shit records, no, download, download shit something records. awful. Yeah. So I had no, for me, it was all an adventure. You know, there were, there were a few books in the house, but, you know, they were kind of the books that every, I think every household had a few books, whether you were middle class, working class, there were a few general books that you had in the house at that time. But they weren't readers, really. They liked music, but they didn't. It wasn't rock and rock and roll. Wasn't anything. Here's um here's a cultural reference you won't be expecting. Have you ever seen the film Short Circuit? Number no. five is alive. It's a robot that achieves consciousness, and and it spends the first half of the film desperately seeking input. More input becomes the catchphrase, and I don't know why, but that's what I'm hearing and, and seeing. You just wanted to hoover up anything, waiting to see what would give you the hmm. the buzz. Yeah, and then it was like youth clubs yes. as well. I mean, I've talked, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not dropping net names all the time, but, you know, people like Bernard Sumner, Johnny Marr, those kind of people, if you talk to them about their music experience, none of them talk about home. They talk about youth club. Yeah. You know, they talk about, and at a youth club, like a kind of youth club that I went to, I didn't go to the one my sister went to because you don't want to, do you? You don't want to cramp her style. She was just discovering guys and <laughs> Bob Dylan. And um, so I went down the road and we all went to see Car Wash when the movie came out, you know. But there you would, music was kind of what you shared. Yes. So you'd hear lots of different kinds of music, stuff that you heard at youth club. And you would pick up clues. And this was all kind of, cultural references you'd be like um, there's a film called Eraserhead by David Lynch and it was just a rumor it was like a rumor <laughs> it wasn't you couldn't it wasn't on Netflix sure. or no, you couldn't download course. it yes. it wasn't on at the cinema it was a rumor and then one day you would suddenly see in the newspaper advert or on a billboard finally it come to town so there was a kind of a search and an, an adventure for that input yes of course um, which for me in a way, it kind of added to it. You had to make an effort. Yes. You know, yeah. it wasn't just there to absorb. So even in just being a consumer of alternative culture actually made you actually made you active. It's the thrill of discovery. Yeah, discovering these things. And, um, you know, so, and so on a lamppost, I saw an advert for a band called Dex's Midnight Runners, mm. who I'd never heard of, supported by... A, band called Joy Division, which I'd heard on wow. John Peel. And yeah. I walked, this is a few months after seeing Blondie, walked into a club, a venue, and there was Dexter's Midnight Runners supported by Joy Division, 75p to see those two bands. 
Joy Division just released their first album, Dex is about to. God. You know, and that was really that, at that point, I was absorbing so much stuff and I was very porous and I was taking it all in and it was having a big impact. And Joy Division made a big impact. So when it came to, you know, what are you going to do with your life? My parents were like every other parent. Yeah. What are you going to do with your life? I'm going to go and, I'm going to go and study in Manchester. And it was kind of purely based on Joy Division. Joy Division Seriously. Factory. How did your mum and dad feel about that? Well, I didn't tell them that. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, the, Eng- the, the, English co- like, the, Eng- the English literature course is very well thought of. <laughs> Love it. Love it. The, um, when you went to the gigs, were you on your own? Uh, yeah, I would go on my own. If nobody else wanted to come, there was a few kids I used to hang out Because with. you don't come across as lonely. And yet... We've used the word alienated a lot, and you've described a search for a tribe. You're quite, you were socially confident, because most 15 and 16 year olds would not have bowled up at Barbarella unaccompanied. No, they wouldn't. But then, um, I don't know, I've not really thought. I mean, <laughs> the weird thing about writing an autobiography is that you, you, you kind of you, you think that you've covered everything you can cover, <laughs> and that, no, people assume that there's a whole lot of stuff you know about yourself which you haven't written. Right. But actually, the, I, I, I kind of have to hold up my hands. A lot of the time, I haven't got a, like a bullet yes. point answer to some of the questions. No, there's and no. So I don't really know. I just remember thinking that, yeah, I'm going to just go. Just and, I, go I think I went to see, well, I remember one time when I was with a little gang of girls and boys and we went to see Generation X at Barbarella's and I just couldn't, like, I didn't like it at all. Because it was quite it, a confected Yeah, outfit. it was quite Billy Idol. Yeah. I didn't, it didn't really... It, well, that's know, a bit like what you said about the Frank Skinner thing, because they it was almost a lack of sincerity. It was almost like yeah. they were trying to be something. Yeah. And we've already established that you have a very yeah. good radar for, we call it artistic sincerity. Well, we? you say that, but I haven't finished telling you the oh, story. Right. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, then, well, then in Barbarella's, there was a second room, which was the disco room, yeah. which, of course, us going to see Blondie and Iggy Pop, we didn't really venture in that room and that was only open on other nights but it happened to be open that night and I just left the Generation X experience and I wandered down the corridor which was red it was like walking down I don't know what but anyway and there was no one in that room and the DJ played Can You Feel the Force by The Real Thing and it just sounded brilliant and and I'm like okay so there's all my friends Generation X you know who were top 20 act probably at that time and there was this, and and the, so the two things was one. I'm glad I went down like yes. that, but also opened up that world of club music, disco music. It, it changed my my yes. appreciation of Sonics, and I previously liked Black Sabbath, Iggy Pop, Blondie, etc. And uh, Joy Division were a punky thing at that point. So when it comes to the late 1980s. I'm not trying to push our conversation along here, but when it comes to the late 1980s and that idea that you've kind of that, that summed up in the Stone Roses and yes. the whole Manchester thing, that actually your music is eclectic and you bring all these influences yes. to bear and it's black music, it's white music, it's psychedelic music, it's punk music. Actually, that absolutely fitted where I was and what I wanted to hear right back to that moment when Gosh. I decided I, I would go to a punk club but spend my evening in the disco room. That basically. makes absolutely perfect sense when you put it like that, doesn't it? It's the it's, it's sort of refusal to, to stay on one track, a refusal to stay in lane, to, to be aware of all the other lanes and all the other traffic, yeah. and then ultimately when you became an artist yourself to, to pick from, from wherever you've pleased. Yeah. We'll go back now to the decision to go to Manchester. Yeah. I presume getting in was a breeze. <laughs> Because I was clever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whether well, you realised it or it. not. I actually, oh, yeah. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, I was, 
there was an element of nerdiness about right. me, and you know, I was quite earnest. I was curious. Uh, maybe I had a, a reasonably good radar of where to go and what to see and what to absorb. But I think I, I was intellectually very mature, emotionally mm. very immature. Okay. So exams are actually not, yeah not not really a problem to me, but. That was just because I actually just <laughs> I enjoyed studying. Why not? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean later on, I you know, you know, I always think that of that Pink Floyd, The Wall, mm. Pink Floyd as a band, all enjoyed a great education. They certainly did. Charter and they brought brought out a record yeah. telling the kids to drop out of school. Yeah, you know, and know. and then then James Brown comes along and he's like, educate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm, I feel like that was good. I was learning my lessons from James Brown, not Pink Floyd. Not Pink Floyd. There's almost yin and yang then. I had never thought of it mm. like that before. Um, so you get to Manchester in presumably 1980. 1980. Bang on. What was it like? Um, Compared to Mosley. Well, to be honest, I think it's one of those weird things that we have in Britain where we like to find enemies quite close by. And, I mean, I find, obviously in Manchester now... Uh, uh, I find among some people in Manchester, not all, but their hatred for Scousers, mm. for example, bewildering because really they've got so much in common, so much in common. And actually one of the great things about being involved in music is you just swerve all that all that stuff about Scousers are different, you know, and I have loads of friends in, in, the, London, in the Liverpool music scene and the London music scene. So... I've always looked at the similarities. I've never looked at the differences. So actually going from Birmingham where I had an art house cinema I went to regularly, I had a little venue called The Fighting Cox where I'd see bands like The Au Pairs and The Prefects, UB40, Steel Pulse, all those kind of bands in small venues and an alternative bookshop just up the road. I kind of replicated that life in Manchester and I found that all. In fact, when I went over to Liverpool in 1981, and I started hanging out with Pete Wiley from a band called Waheat. Mm. He introduced me to Liverpool's alternative bookshop, photography gallery, little cafe bar, record shop. So my tribe, as we called it earlier, yes. my tribe is not about a postcode. Clearly. It's not about a postcode, which is weird because in our world there is lots of re you know reasons going back over centuries that people have create enemies wherever mm. they go. And the Manchester music scene was very small in 1980. I think, you know, more people bought Dire Straits records in Manchester in 1980 than went to see Joy Division, The Buzzcocks and The Fall put together. Or new, and, well, New Order, as they obviously were by the end oh, yeah. of 1980. So Manchester's now very, very mythologised yes. music culture in, in that period. That was the weirdo tribe. The ones in who only went out to clubs in midweek and also had their ears open to all sorts of stuff from other international, you yes. know, like Factory Records was very interested in what was going on in New York, for example. I, again, enjoyed the adventure of finding the bits of Manchester where, yeah, I kind of fa found my tribe, I guess. And then the fanzine, Debris, presumably was an attempt to show other people what you'd found. Yeah, I mean, sharing is really important to me. I, I kind of felt like at that point I was in a sharing culture. You know, Pete Wiley would share stuff with me. People I hung out with, have you heard this? You know, have you read this? Let's try this. So Debris, a lot of people did music fanzines, but I, me being me, 
You should be reviewing. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. I'm not laughing at you. I think it's uh, this was '83, so final year at university, and uh, yeah, and, and then <laughs> at that point, Thatcher was in full effect. There weren't jobs really, even if you were, you know, a clever English literature graduate. That didn't really bother me. You know, you could slip under the radar a lot easier then than you can now. You know, you could sign on, you could get your housing benefit paid. There was a thing that came in called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme that yes. came in at kind of probably 84, 85, 86, where you could, the government would basically give you a little bit of money to get you off the unemployment register. And there was, again, a whole generation of people who took advantage of that to kind of hide away from the real world, and do our own thing. So that little Manchester scene actually grew partly partly because people were taking advantage of joblessness, yes. in a way, making a virtue out of a necessity. So what were you doing? I mean, the fanzine was your thing, because more obviously people were putting bands together. Yeah. I think I've read Ian Brown saying, actually, that if it wasn't for income support, half of the bands that came out of Manchester never would have no, it's, had I, any rehearsal time. No, you know, it's true. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, same with Happy Mondays. I can remember them all signing on to the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Aiton Street, uh, was uh, it? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, which is now a holiday inn. Where we all signed on was now Holiday Inn. Believe it or not, yeah. And then you know Alan McGee from Creation Records. He was the same. And in fact, he he had a little fanzine. The fanzine was a kind of little bit of an entry level thing that a lot of people did. James Brown, who went on to be the editor of Loaded Loaded, and editor of GQ for a while as well. Uh, Obviously, going back a bit further, people like Paul Morley. Lots of people who started out as fanzines. It was kind of what I would now call, you know. A cultural intervention. Yes. And it was actually cultural intervention you you could do if you had access to a photocopier. That's all you needed. You get it out. Again, it's that Kevin Rowland jumped the barrier. Manchester was a long way away from London. And for all my education and my whatever possible confidence and my desire, I couldn't write for a magazine. You know, I'd, I'd, I didn't know who to phone. How do you write for NME or The Face? Or who are those people? They're just things that you find in WH Smith's and you buy them right and the idea that you that you could participate in that world was as alien as getting on stage and being in Iggy Pop's band it wasn't so you had to stay local and you stayed whatever was possible you you pushed whatever was possible as far as it would go and actually just having a fanzine was enough that was that was great And, and, and it also opened doors this is perhaps younger viewers will be will be surprised to learn that you could then through the fanzine, set up interviews with people who were famous then, but, yeah, but I mean, household that, names now. And, and I mean, again, yeah, I mean, keys uh, to the kingdom. Uh, all, all those bands, you know, and all those artists like, you know, Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks, Ian Curtis from Joy Division, all those people gave lots of fanzine interviews. Fanzines were an important part of all that. The chatter around that and the, and the curation of the culture was in the hands of fanzine editors. And my fanzine also included, I used to do things like, because uh, I'm, I got this haircut quite early on in my life. So I used to have to go and see a barber every two weeks. And it was it obviously it took up a lot of time. And even when I was 23, my time was precious in a way. I had stuff to do. <laughs> so I used to interview the barbers. Fantastic. So I, I, I collected all these interviews, like 80, 80-year-old barbers who'd grown up doing short back and sides and were just so pleased that that hippies were no longer fashionable because <laughs> hippies never went to barbers. So they were like, yeah, <laughs> we want more people like you, Dave, uh, coming here every two weeks and paying you a pound fifty. So I'd interview barbers and then there'd be like a piece about, you know, the Russian film director Andrei Tarkovsky or something. And, and it was just an experience. 
a way to self-express. So this really. was, yes, it, well, this was the exhalation, having spent mm. the previous t- 10 years inhaling yeah. as much as you can. This was, and, and it, that, yeah. that speaks of a certain confidence, doesn't it? That speaks of an, I can now Kind of, I think it, what it speaks of is that, that further movement from being a consumer to being a producer. And that's really, yes. I think that is, the, that is a really healthy culture, a healthy world of ideas. People yes. turn from being a consumer to being a producer. So you see something happen on stage or on screen or you read something and you want to do that and you have the tools and there aren't barriers. Or if there are barriers, you have the tools to break them down. And that that is really what a healthy culture is. And a culture where everyone's just consuming what a few people are saying is a really unhealthy culture. The participation is so important. And I actually think that came out, for me, that probably comes a little bit out of punk was like mm. that. You know, I always say... It looks so accessible, didn't it? Looks, it as yeah. well. Anyone if, could if, do if it. Sid, Too cool. If Sid Vicious can yes. be a pop star, yes. or if, in fact, even if Bez can be a pop star, then who <laughs> can't? <laughs> I don't know that Bez was the beginning of a long tradition. Well, Bez, was he, was Bez, the Bez is evidence that evidence that you can... You can yes, cre- you, anything is possible. You can carve out a career in, in show business stroke avant-garde popular music yes. with just a dance move and some maracas. Yes, no, you make, you make an excellent point. The, the years in which you were consuming, did you have a sense, and this is again something that, that you, you, you're going to say I don't have a bullet point answer to this, but did, did you have a sense that you were a producer in waiting while you were being a consumer and the fanzine then became the first embodiment of that? Um, yeah, I thought I could get involved. But the, my, my thing was I didn't think, I, I wasn't ambitious Right. At all. I didn't think, oh, if I start a fanzine and I write about the right things and I knock on the right doors and interview the right people, one day I'll get a proper job mm. in a proper magazine. I see. I didn't think that. So it was an end in itself. Absolutely, an end in itself. When I started DJing, it was a very, as I say in the book, it just happened by accident. Yes. I was put in a, in fact, what first happened is I started putting on bands in small venues around Manchester, bands that couldn't really get a gig and just needed a little bit of help, bands that I, I liked hearing their demo tapes or whatever. Me and a, few, a couple of other people used to put them on. And and then we just needed someone to play music before and after the bands. And I was I was just designated that person. You know, it wasn't like I was the DJ. We didn't really have role models for DJs apart from the ones who were all pretty you treed up now you know <laughs> they were never role models though. they were never no they weren't role so models so the dj the phrase so the D- dj didn't mean anything no, they, except, no, them, except, except them except them yes so uh, you didn't want to be a dj because that was yeah i mean it was radio djs were different but sure club djs i mean on the northern Steel so- territory wasn't yeah, it, i mean the it? northern soul scene the reggae different. scene they had mm. djs were a very important part of that scene but on the kind of indie avant-garde electro-y whatever scene it didn't really matter. So, And that's part of what you said before about all the different traditions coming together under dance music, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because it, it, that is very much the, the Primal Scream being a good example, at least by yeah. the time Scream and Delica, but, but the merging of rock and dance, the merging yeah. of older traditions and newer traditions. And the thing and- is that that actually happened before, because I think in the book what I talk about more is... You know, we're used to hearing that, you know, there are TV shows about made about the, you know, yeah. 30 years since the Acid House Revolution, as if one day... It just went off like every, Yeah, every, one day everyone was like, 
gloomy and we had Joy Division <laughs> and we had, the, you know, we had like a couple of Smiths albums and a fanzine and no one was interested. And then one day Bez took ecstasy and a guy called Gerald created Voodoo, Voodoo Ray, Ray and yeah, the world was changed. But in, but as a as somebody who had started DJing in the Hacienda at 86... What sort of stuff were you playing then? I, I, it was... Um, Relatively eclectic, but yes. the thing no, about no kidding. A bit, <laughs> things like um, Twenty Three Skidoo, um, obviously. Well, I was the only DJ in the Hacienda River played New Order okay, because the really? Hacienda was one of those weird things where oh, uh, yes, you know okay. you wouldn't play. Why would you play a record just because it was made by the owners of the club? Of the, club of course, the one so. thing about DJing there was the idea was it was different. And did you mix at that point in 86? No. So you were just putting one record on well, after more the or other? Less, yeah, yeah. Of, of But course. the programming was very... The, it was really about the programming. Right. Because although you weren't mixing, there was a sense that there was somehow creating emotions in Over people. a long... Not, not over a long five-minute separate yeah. emotions, so it but wasn't a long... like that kind of like the, the house thing where there's like a couple of minutes and a big breakdown sure. and everyone goes mental, put hands in the air, and then that is kind of repeated ad nauseum for yes. four or five hours. It was it was about, you know, how, yeah, how do you bring people into uh, the vibe you're trying to create? How do you bring people onto the dance floor? Where do you take them after that? How do you play a record they've never heard before? Where do you put that in the set? And the idea was just to be different. It was, it was just, to, ultimately, it was just about me playing my favourite records loudly to a group of strangers and just enjoying that. A big group of strangers, a warehouse. Well, it never started. As a, no. We had to build it. I mean, right, we had to build the audiences. Because, yes. yes. again, that's another part of the... Th- the story is is how we had to create and then nurture an audience. It was an interesting thing. It wasn't there wasn't a ready made. We didn't have we didn't know what kind of music we were playing in the book. I have a bit of a, a giggle that yes. someone actually said says to me that acid house set yeah. you played was brilliant, and I actually didn't know what acid house was. They were just the records that I was playing that I bought that this, week. This is a theme in the book, isn't and it? And I, I just, I just love that. The, I mean, the, the frust- frustration is not quite the right word, but when you mentioned that the bears under the balcony was not the beginning of some apocalyptic explosion, it was almost the culmination of lots of lots. We're back again to this idea of lots of paths leading to this, yeah. this one place. And I said at the beginning, I am very much of the view that it did lead to somewhere unique and truly remarkable, yeah. and for me, genuinely life changing. But I, I get now why. You don't like the portrayal of it as being a kind of almost a moment of conception. Yeah, because I think the roots of it all were laid very deeply. And, you know, they were laid in lots of different kinds of music, musical traditions coming together. I think it was also what I mentioned earlier about the factory and the Manchester scene being kind of quite open to influences from overseas. That open-mindedness, that's the other thing. I mean... Again, I mean, ecstasy in many ways was a great drug that empowered and enabled lots of stuff to happen in the Hacienda and elsewhere. But it didn't create the soundtrack. No. And and also it didn't, it created open-mindedness in a lot of people who wouldn't have otherwise been open-minded. But there were already a lot of people who were open-minded. That was the whole, that was why it was the Hacienda that became the blueprint of rave culture. That's why it happened at the Hacienda, because... We were already at that point. Right. We had everything there before the drug. Right. And then when the drug hit, it just went Blew the doors up a level. Off. Yes. 
I get that. That makes sense. We're talking about you. I find you fascinating. The book is fascinating, partly because you find other people so fascinating. So we should probably pay a little bit of attention to the people that you find fascinating. And it's a veritable who's who. You tell a very poignant tale of your f- flirtation with Tracy Thorne. Is that the right word? I mean, there's a there's a there's a romance that never yeah that was never culminated. You talk about like the, the title of the book, Sonic You Slept on My Floor. You thirst and more. In, in Pizza Hut, although he doesn't, yeah. when you meet him later, he doesn't remember either meeting, which, you know, he's a busy man. He was busy a, man. Morrissey, I love the bit where you were the only fanzine editor who refused to yeah. bow as all the other fans. Because, I mean, he, he had assumed a godlike status by that point. I mean, you knew everyone from that milieu. Yeah, I did. And and then later on, obviously, I'm uh, in the book, I get to a point where I do a lot of on-stage interviews in Manchester and I'm in- meeting people like David Byrne, Niall Rogers, Nana Cherry. And th- those characters I write about are people that I've met over a period of, yeah, more than 30 years. Yes. And there's a few things that I still find fascinating about those people. One is that they, people always say, don't meet your heroes. And I tend to only get close to or interview my heroes because I'm not, I can't kind of fake interest in people who don't interest me. So they tend to be my and heroes. You have a lot of heroes. And I have a lot of heroes, yes. Yeah. And, and I also have a lot of heroes that I want to pay homage to, yes. and I pay homage to them in the book, you know. And I would say almost all of them, by the end of the interview or the encounter, whatever it is that enables me to meet them, I, I love them more. Yes. They're, you know, I'm not disillusioned by them at all. And I think that's an, an important thing to say because I, th- I do think that, again, often in our society we like to kind of you know, drag down people, especially, you know, it's like, who do you think you are thing. People like Niall Rogers are just amazing people. And Niall, interviewing him, he's one of those people who he's never taken. He doesn't take, because that's the other thing. I think people think of successful people as being people who trample over everyone else to get where they go. And the only way to get success is to put other people down and exploit other people and find their weakness. And then you meet Niall Rogers and he's worked with Madonna and, da- and David Bowie and he's had multiple hit records and Grammys and he's worked with Daft Punk. He's never stepped on anyone. Yeah. He's got where he's got by being nice to people, by doing quality work, collaborating with people, seeing the best in everyone and just giving and giving. So when you meet someone like that, it, it, they're inspiring people. So they've never, they very, very rarely let me down. And the other thing that interests me about them, which I try and get in the book, is that mix of ordinary and extraordinary. Yes. They're, they're extraordinary people in a lot of ways. But I like the ordinary side of them. And, I, you know, and I'm lucky that, you know, I've had times when I've been sat in a dressing room with David Byrne of Talking Heads for like an, with an hour to kill, you know. And there, you're not showbiz. You're just sat there and you're talking about cycling and chocolate biscuits and even, you know, stuff that really matters it is as well. The, it's, the, it's the collision of the ordinary and the extraordinary yeah. that fascinates you most, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it it's, is. It's that... Alchemy, almost. Yeah. I don't really know how my mind works, but I think I'm lucky in that my mind tends to think of everything first as ordinary. Okay, so my job is an ordinary job. I'm a DJ. It's an ordinary job. And I treat it like somebody who takes pride in an ordinary job. And the fact that you can then be flown to Peru or New York or Paris to DJ or whatever, that is just kind of, that's then what happens. The extraordinary part isn't okay. isn't what comes first to mind in, in my world. And so when I meet, when I introduced Johnny Marr 
to Nile Rodgers. What did they talk about? Tuning guitars. Yeah. Right. That's what two of the greatest guitarists of the last 50 years wanted to talk about. Yeah. Something which, to my mind, is really, really mundane. Sure. And I was in a room with them, and they were talking about <laughs> guitars. And I was like, I was picking at Nile Rodgers' sushi yeah. and just, like, waiting waiting for them to shut up. But, um, so that but meeting, they were having the time of their yeah, life because yeah. they're finally so, speaking so, yeah. to people on their own level about something that's an intrinsic part so of So they talk about guitars life. for, like, ten oh. minutes, and then... And then Johnny Marr says, um, and actually they were on the same record together, they, which they recorded different parts in different continents. So they were talking about the Brian Ferry record that they were both on. Mm. And then Johnny said, you do know, Niall, that my son is named Niall after you. And so that was an extraordinary moment. Absolutely. But we'd, we'd done the 10 minutes of talking about guitars. And yes. we'd had the sushi. And you need both. And and we and that that just that really and I try and bring that out in the book. I don't really know to what end, other than it's that yeah, it's that mixture which really really intrigues it me. It's, it's a mixture in you as well, and I'm interested in where you'd put the percentages of the chronicler, the observer. How much of Dave Haslam is the chronicler and the observer, the describer, the recorder, mm. the archivist, and how much is the performer, the producer, the the artist? Uh, yeah, I and mean, that. God, that's a good question. I mean, that's something that um, I, I like being a participant in the culture that I write about. I mean, I like, I guess I could have been in another life a kind of academic, yes. writing it quite forensically about popular culture. Postmodern, but, a very postmodern position. Yeah. Yes. But I don't want to be, that doesn't interest me. You want to get your hands dirty. Yeah. My favourite time, really, one of my favourite times in my life, even now when I'm 56, is four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning in a club with like, you know, maximum 300 people in a 200 capacity club, preferably a basement, strobe machine, smoke machine. You don't know what time it is. You don't know where you are. Neither do the audience. The music's really loud. They've never heard the music before. They love it. Just that, yeah. that simple moment, because that that's just, I love that moment. Can you remember the first one? Those moments just have just kept on happening. But the first one, when you actually went from being the bloke who's just playing records because you're waiting for the band to start, and that would have been at places like Band on the Wall, would it, and the boardwalk and the clubs bo- like that? Yeah, and Man Alive. Yes. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, I think when it was... Did you, when did you realise that DJing had become a performance art? I think the first time, really, it sounds odd, but I think it was 1990. What? Really? I know, yeah. Four years after you started playing yeah. at the Hacienda. How come? Because because up until that point, I was the bloke putting on the records that people danced to. Uh, yes. and, and to me, it was a joy, but it wasn't... I didn't realise anything of the cultural significance of it. And then, and then a couple of things happened in nineteen. The Spike Island happened, mm. and and the Stone, and that was the third or fourth gig I'd done warming up for the Stone Roses, which I mean they were all great gigs, but there were twenty thousand people yeah, there. Jesus. You know, it was a big, big deal, and there were camera crews and press releases and all that stuff, which we had not had really before then. We were underground. Yeah, we were underground people, just as you now get a cultural underground. And our underground lasted a long time because nobody was particularly interested and no one could access it. And we were in Manchester. And when it did get overground, that was when it suddenly became a big deal. Okay. And then the same year, we did a Hacienda DJ tour of America. And Graham Park, one of the other Hacienda DJs, and I were sat in the back of a limousine 
going from Detroit airport into the centre of Detroit to play records. And, and we just, he knows his music, the depth that I do. And we just looked at each other and we are like, Detroit is one of the music capitals of the world, if not the music capital of the world. Why have they flown us all the way here and sent a limousine for us to play our ropey selection of Hacienda tunes? And that was us being a bit self-deprecating, sure. but it was also us suddenly realising, wow, this is what we've been doing has become big and important. Well, answer that question then. Why did they invite you to Detroit? What, Be- what was going on that was so special? Well, Manchester was just, that era was beginning to be talked about and everybody wanted a little taste of it. Funnily enough, on that tour, we went to, I remember playing the night before in Chicago and the guy running the club at the end of the night said, I've never run a night where we've had such a mix of black and white kids in our crowd. And for someone like me, that was a much, much better thing for anyone to say to me than, you know, oh, I love that weird 23 Skidoo dub mix that you played. (laughs) You know, that goes without saying that's what DJs should do. They should play stuff like that. But for someone to actually in Chicago to say that, you know... You've broken a barrier. Yeah, you've broken that kind of barrier. And I think there were people in America who had, you know, got bored of the pretty straight rock thing and rock and house music wasn't mixing in America. And there were a few people who were just like us because that's the other great thing, James, about being a DJ is you travel and wherever you go, you meet your tribe Mm -hmm. because they're the the guys or the women who are running the club. They take you to their favourite little hangout. Come and have a drink here. Oh, you've got to meet this person. And, you know, and I remember going to Reykjavik for about a day and a half. And I went to kind of like three little record shops, four art gallery openings, a couple of restaurants, you know, and somebody else's club. And then after I finished, I went to somebody else's club. And it was, and there they were. They were people just like me who were living in downtown Reykjavik. They did want to talk about weird music, but they also. Uh, and I just, I love that connection. I love making that connection. And and that's why perhaps more recently, after after your marriage broke down, you moved to Paris. It kind of, yeah, it, it's it kind well, of, anyway. Un, well, un- My love un- life un- is un- a lot in the book, but yes, what I do is, is. I... I Partly because I don't really know what the status of my relationship with Tracy Thorne back in 1983-4 was, for example. And like anyone, really, once they start looking under the surface, kind of begin to think, what's going on in my life? Yes. Um, So, yeah, things got a bit complicated, and I went off to Paris. Change of air. More input. Yeah, I mean, I think in the the book, it sort of slightly falls into three parts. The first part is the kind of that evolution of all that stuff me absorbing stuff but also the the roots of the whole manchester thing being laid by me and dozens of other people and then it all coming to fruition and then there's a middle section which is the spike island and you know gunchester tony wilson all those things which is kind of the things that i feel like are more in the public domain Yes. People feel like they know that. You know, it's like you know the the books that Hooky might write, for example. Yes. So I kind of feel like people know that stuff. So my take on all that is a very honest and personal one. And, and, and then the final shocking sort of, at times. People, I, mean, I hadn't heard the story about you having a gun pulled on you in the DJ booth before. Or, no, well, yeah. I mean, it is especially the Gunchester years are quite shocking. Yeah. And actually, uh, you know, getting a proper death threat off a proper. Me, I'm not. I'm not talking about the. I mean, there was the gun guy, and then there yeah. was a death threat, and having to deal with by being the kind of guy that you know, 
I was suddenly put into a situation where by that time I was running club nights at the boardwalk. So I had a a very high profile and I was involved in trying to keep some pretty heavy bad guys out of the club. And my son was very young and then my daughter was born and I was kind of like getting home at two o'clock in the morning and I was... Uh, you know, if I if I'd been religious, I'd have got down on my knees and thanked God because they were it. very very hairy situations. Yeah. And so that's the interesting thing about uh, the middle section is the magic coupled with the misery, the yeah. the, the tragedy and the ecstasy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Um, you know, the first ecstasy death in Britain in a nightclub was a girl called Claire Layton who was taking ecstasy while I was DJing. Yeah, she was sixteen, wasn't she? Yeah. So I think. In the book, you have to be. Uh, if you're going to write a book like this, you have to be honest, you honest do. about who you are, what you say, what you saw, and the complicatedness of life. And so, what when you say about you know going to Paris, that was part of the final third of the book. What do my generation do? I don't want to walk down the street and people to be like, oh yeah, he was big in the eighties. No. You know, he's hanging on to this, he's hanging on to that, or even worse, he's milking this, he's milking that. Manchester can be accused of all that kind of stuff in a way. But actually, it's a very lively, very active, very 21st century city. And a lot of the music scene is as strong as... In fact, there's probably more creative people now in Manchester because a lot of young creatives don't want to have to live in London to do what they want to do. They want to get out. And a lot of people in the north don't feel like they need to go to London to make it. They come to Manchester instead. But at the same time, I'm like, well, how do I deal with all this baggage? Yes. Although I don't really explain it like this, and I'm not sure this is the whole truth, but I sell all my records, yes. which is a kind of getting rid of the baggage. It's a kind of, I need to move on. So what do I need to move, move on? I need to lighten my load. So I sell 4,500 records, but I sell, sell, sell them to a 31-year-old DJ who becomes my best mate, and we end up Sorry. DJing together. <laughs> um, but not my best mate. We no, were mates, you know, yeah, and yeah, we, yeah. He, we, he wants to do a festival. And, so it, I, and then I use some of the money to live in Paris for six months, and it's partly to kind of work out what's going on in my marriage, partly because I've always wanted to live in Paris, and also because... Everywhere I went, it was like Manchester, Manchester, Manchester. And it was like, tell us about this, tell us about that. And I needed perspective on that. I needed to, in a way, go back to the kid who would read novels from anywhere and music from anywhere. And so I escaped to Paris. And it's my, I mean, the Paris chapter, which is great because it's no one's expecting it in the book. So it's kind of quite, for me, it's like, yeah, for me, it's like when you're a DJ, you're playing the big tunes. So you play the big tunes and then you play something which is totally unexpected. And if you're a great DJ, that doesn't affect the dance floor. Everyone goes with you. And that's how the last few chapters are in my head. No one's really expecting me to talk about the lesbians who saved my life. Uh, which is, I just, I just start hanging out with lesbians in Paris, basically, and I have an amazing, <laughs> um, amazing social life as a result. And I'm in Paris just after the Bataclan, and then I come back from Paris just before the Manchester bomb. So again, I have that kind of, you know, as you pointed out before, you you have the the moments of joy, mm. you know, the lesbians 
let me de- invited me to DJ at one of their nights. So I was in, in a club by the River Seine, like 700 lesbians, and I dropped I Feel Love by Donna Summer, and the whole place goes <laughs> mental. And uh, I, I get so carried away, I bite one of them on the arm, and she invites me to Nice to meet her grandmother. It's a great night, James. You really should have been there. I know, sure. But, and that's in a city that is still recovering from the Bataclan attack. And then yes. I come back to Manchester... And the Manchester bomb happens. So then I have to really assess what what is valuable and what's significant. And, you know, I, and I yeah. kind of begin to ask kind of quite big questions about what it all means. And I, I try and make a link and I talk about, you know, ISIS targeting a live music venue in, in Paris and a live music venue in Manchester. And I'm thinking, well, why is that? Yes. What is it about my culture, yes. our culture? That music culture, that culture of freedom and pop music and weirdos and lesbians, what is it about that culture that so upsets them they need to destroy it? And so I kind of start talking about that and I talk about the res- Manchester's response to the bomb. And, and, and what it does is address two things. It, it addresses ISIS's problem with the, with the culture, with the music, but it also, for me gave a bit of a finger to the people who, who like to go, why are we singing? Why are we doing Don't Look Back in Anger? And the line that, that really brings that home is that ISIS must somehow believe music to be an important thing in our society, that music is such an important thing to us, they must somehow feel threatened by it. But following these attacks, music became part of the healing process. And that's what these agitators and provocateurs and, and often fairly racist people miss, mm. is that music is part of the healing process. It's not, it's not a kind of distraction or it's a bomb. Yeah, and and I realised, and that's when I realised that all the entertainments and events of the 40 years of music that I'm talking about in the early chapters actually add up to creating that reservoir that the of hope and solidarity that the people of Manchester drew upon. And I kind of realised that my experience and the experience of thousands and thousands of other people, not just in Manchester but elsewhere, of being in a club and being so close to Debbie Harry or Iggy Pop or even, you know, your, your mate's band and just being in that moment or being on a dance floor and connecting with someone across the dance floor, a complete stranger, and just feeling that moment of community and communality, that that actually is... Some people are threatened by that and yeah. why they're threatened about that. It's about because we are recognising our common characteristics and our similarities and our connectedness. And people in our society, some of them, the ones who want to destroy it, they don't get that, they don't like that, they feel threatened by that. And so the way the book the book ends is it I, I almost it almost makes me think of again of those moments in the boardwalk where I'm like, well why am I running a club night where there's guys coming in threatening to kill me and then I have to go home and, and my two children are asleep upstairs and I'm putting myself in that situation. Why am I doing it? I'm doing it for the all the other people in that club who for them, those three hours are not just the best three hours of their week, but it's an important part of who they are, their identity, their friendship groups, their community, and it all really matters to them, and I'm doing it for them as much as for me. And you're going to carry on doing it. I'm addicted to DJing. You, you are, aren't you? Yes, especially the, other, the, other especially thing, the 4am till 6am gigs. That, that moment, that little moment, because we're, we're at the end of our time together. It's, got, it's felt quite symmetrical. It feels as if we've reached a conclusion. But something occurs to me while I've been talking to you, which is that, that you've never had a plan. 
And if I, because I often end these interviews by saying what's next, but you've never known what's next, apart from being addicted to DJing. And I mm. sense that if you did know what was next, you'd do the opposite. You'd do something different. <laughs> yeah, I pro- probably would. I probably would. Now, I don't know what's next. I mean, I do want to keep DJing. Of course. I mean, but I don't want to be that, again, I don't want to be that one that, I don't want to turn up to a, a gig and there's no one there. Um because ultimately, that's what about you know DJing. You ha- you hang up your headphones when nobody wants to hear you, and I'm very lucky in that I'm actually a better DJ now than I used to be, and and people still book me, and I still have a great time. And so I'm not going to give that. Up. I love I love the world of ideas. I don't you know writing is a, writing books is a pretty hard thing yes. to do, as you know, <laughs> the emotional commitment and the commitment in terms of time. I find it better than journalism because journalism is I find the whole you know how to get work and what mm. you write about and someone else going to edit your thing and da, 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 it's too much but I, so i like doing the books because they're my my thing and they're what i do i actually have got a weird little challenge for myself which is when i sold my records i sold them to a 31 year old yeah. dj from detroit seth troxler but the other person who wanted to buy them is a guy called mauro from parma in italy who's just bought an old church in Palma, and he's turning it into an art gallery stroke performance space. And he's booked me in November to do a one-hour avant-garde performance art piece. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to honour that gig, but I have no idea what I'm going to do. I met someone yesterday, a girl from Italy, who was bought one of my books at an event, and I made the mistake of telling her she actually wants to come with all the friends so it's really an happening. audience now it's building. really happening but I, I kind of like that i just like yeah I think you know you do. i think that comes across we know that why not yeah exactly that's my More i important. want that to be my default position as a 56 year old is, is if somebody suggests something to me my default is why not rather than why should i dave haslam thank you james thank you ever so much thank you. that was lovely cheers thank you. Well, I told you that there was a lot more to Dave Haslam than being a superstar DJ, but even even I didn't realise just how many fingers he's had in, in quite so many pies over the years. Look on that interview as an introduction to the book because there is so much more in it than we managed to cover. I wouldn't want you to think that it was a, a kind of roundup or review of the book and Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor is out now in all good bookshops. Don't forget to subscribe to Unfiltered if you've enjoyed this one and and haven't yet signed up to get everything we do. Leave a rating and a review, ideally very warm and positive ones, but obviously I can't force you to do that over at iTunes. And if you have enjoyed this, there's a significant body of work that we've assembled now under the Unfiltered banner, so please spread the word. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.